0: Action camera. Here we go. Well, good morning, Mission Church. Those you that are in the room here in Lancaster, if you're joining us online, good to have you join us. And of course, our friends in Myerstown. So good to have you guys uh, listening in as well. For those who I have not met, there's still so many new faces that are coming in the church. My name is Jared. I serve as one of the pastors here. And I would say I am now a 10-year pastor, literally 10 years of a pastor as of yesterday was my anniversary. And uh, glad... Oh, thanks. Wow. It goes fast. I know I sound like an old man here, kids, but it goes fast. And um, it is uh, just what a blessing it is, you know. It's a little bit, you know, sentimental uh, for me. I know a a number of you, I can just like look around the room and I see like a number of you that have walked through uh, that transition with me from the classroom into this place here and um, so grateful and so thankful for uh, you and also uh, for the... Eldership that we have and our pastoral staff has just been, yeah, it's just been amazing. So it's been, it's been a great 10 years, and uh, look forward to many, many more, uh, whatever the Lord has for us. And uh, and so we just see our our goal is to continue to see people coming to know Christ, and to grow up in Christ, and to plant more communities that are doing the same thing. And um, if He would have me uh, for 10 more years using that or more. Awesome. I'm all about that, so, and I hope that you are here, and part of the reason we come here today is to help us grow in that. I'm usually on that side of it, uh, feeling, getting equipped by our, mostly our senior pastor, and, uh, and others that have come through here, and I just uh, love sitting under God's Word, and the privilege and the honor it is to preach God's Word today. He says preach it in season and out of season, and this is very in season for me right now, so uh, can I just pray for us as we uh, dive into God's Word, and so, Father... We come before you thankful uh, that um, that we can uh, just be used by you. Lord, um, you don't need us yet. You've chosen to use us. And God, the only reason that we are able to be used is through Christ's blood. I'm just um, so filled up by singing those words back to you, God. And I pray that as we uh, see that love in your scriptures, that it's um, not just words on a screen or on a paper, Lord, but that we can see the Holy Spirit at work. Um, in our hearts and, um, and really just see uh, you as the Messiah, the Savior, the one who has come uh, to be able to save us and then help us to live out a faith uh, that is pointed towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're on our Be Different series. And uh, for those of you who know me, that's not a difficult step for me to be different than the average person, and maybe that is for you. Uh, But Jesus has definitely called us to a higher standard, and we have seen from his most famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5, and uh, Matthew 5 through 7 it will be. Uh, You can start heading to Matthew 5 as I uh, set up kind of what we're talking about today, We've been talking about, uh, the sermon started with uh, Christ talking about that we are blessed. Blessed are those who, and then he has a list of what we're blessed. Those that are followers of Christ are blessed. And that should automatically make a difference. But Jesus knew that it wasn't uh, enough to leave it there. That he wanted to explain what it means once you're blessed and saved by Christ to actually how to walk out your faith. And so he does... What we still do today is provide a sermon for you to help understand God's Word on a deeper level, to know how to walk out our faith. You know, living for Christ is different in the world's eyes. That's what we've been saved from, uh, a world of of sin and and selfishness. But He has a kingdom that He's building, and uh, He is inviting those to be part of it. And this is why when he talks about in the introduction of his sermon that we're salt and light, that this world is a dark place, and that he says, what I'm going to tell you about is how to be a light in the dark world. And I don't know about you, but I've been challenged so far to say, man, this is hard. And I also don't realize how necessary sometimes that the light is in the dark world, and yet he calls us to be that. But once you're changed by Jesus... He begins to show you and show you more and more. And uh, Jesus knew that living a life for Him wouldn't be easy, and uh, so this is clearly why He addressed it. and uh, And another hard topic for us today, as Jesus deals with, um, He's going to call His followers of Christ to have a different kind of love. This is a hard topic for me because my inclination of love is not always what's going to be described here. Sometimes it's based on a feeling or reciprocation. If you love me, it's pretty easy to love you back, or at least in my definition of it. But here's the, here's the point of today is that we're called to love like God loves. And Jesus is not just the perfect teacher for this, but he's going to be the perfect model for this as well. And so this morning we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions, at least I did in my preparation, is, is who does Jesus love? Now, if you grew up in church and in Sunday school, you got a couple songs rolling around in your head when I say, who does Jesus love? But how is Jesus' love different from the world? And the question is, is are we really supposed to love like Jesus? Because if you think about it, to me, it's, is it even possible to love like Jesus? Remember, this is Jesus who loved what he will call his enemies, and he'll even love those that he knows will betray him. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. And when I think of love, I don't always measure it against Jesus' standards of love. When I think about love, I think about the first person I said, I love you too. Outside of my family, of course. My beautiful bride of now 18 years. Some of you in this room remember us in this stage. And uh, this is, right, this is young love. We're teenagers at this point. We thought we knew what love was. What was it? It was a feeling. It was like we connect. We laugh at each other's jokes at that time, which, by the way, my wife found out I'm not quite as funny as I was back then, right? Like you, you see love like that, and you're reminded, and you think this is what love is about. I love you. Now, sorry to tell you, I didn't quite understand the definition of love to the fullest, and I think that my wife is happy that I didn't just stop there at my standard of love. And I think even today, after 18 years of marriage, that I wouldn't uh, say, you know what, I think I've figured out how much I can love you. That would not be a good conversation to have. There's more to be learned, there's more to know about love, there's more depths of it, there's more to explore. And praise God, we are still exploring that and growing in our love. And so Jesus today will say, you might have figured out what you think love is, but I'm telling you there are deeper levels of it, that there is more to it. And so if you say, man, I I feel like I can love my enemies, let's measure it against Jesus' standards to make sure that we know what love is. And so today Jesus is going to challenge us. And so we're in Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. When we see a love like Jesus, we're going to see the first thing here is that we love without retaliation. He gives some examples in there, but before we get there, that we're to love without a retaliation, Jesus is responding to a popular teaching of the day. Of course he is, because he says, you have heard it said. You're going to notice that as Jesus is laying out his sermon, he's going to deal with a whole section of you have heard it said, but I say to you. In fact, after he closes these few verses off, this, this message is going to be sort of the end of his point one. He's, he's going to move on to a different a topic, a different um, audience with this same audience in the room, but he's really going to be addressing the scribes who did all the writing down and basically were telling the people what the scripture said. They weren't actually reading it for themselves, and so he had to make sure. He says, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Did they hear this right? Yeah, you're going to see that they heard the words correctly in some ways. Uh, This is uh, coming straight out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19, uh, he's referring to, makes it very clear. He says, in, starting in verse 18, the judges shall inquire diligently. I emphasize the word judges, I'll come back to that. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to you, his brother. So you shall purge evil from the midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So that's what they've heard it said. You could also find the same teaching where a judge is to apply eye for an eye in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24. So they've heard that it has said that. And so what's the problem? Eye for an eye. The idea there is you're getting justice. It makes sense to me. We all have an internal sense of justice in us. We all want to have our wrongs righted. We get that. It's what we love about movies. They have a justice league out there. Right It's like what we love about our stories, that there's somebody searching to make wrongs right. We understand that. It's in the fabric of our country that there was injustices that are trying to make right. There's that popular saying, I don't get mad, I get even. Right? This idea that an eye for an eye inside of us all, that makes some sense. And the issue here is that eye for an eye was, was a principle that was to be carried out by the court system, the, the judges. It comes from this idea, this political principle of lex talionis, a Latin word. It means the law of retaliation. It was a punishment that was supposed to resemble the degree and kind. It was adopted by many cultures. You could find this still today out there, and you were supposed to be punished precisely and similarly, at least based on the value. But it was a judge to decide these eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And since the intent of lex talionis is for a court, then, uh, and the retaliation there, it's not meant to be placed in our own hands. It makes sense, right? You know, so if I were to get into a car accident, I wouldn't say, all right, get a similar car, line it up, let me drive it over and make that right. It doesn't, because there, there's other value than just the loss of a car that may take place. And what they're saying here, what you'll see is eye for an eye was to be reserved in the, in the court of law. And so why would we want to take the law into our own hands? Of course, we feel justified to retaliate hurts. We justify our revenge. We don't think that the courts, that, that what God has laid out for us is going to give us the justice that we want. And some of us are even willing to go to places of injustice to get the justice we want. As I said, I've been a youth pastor 10 years, and the one uh, thing that I would advise um, tend uh, youth pastors to last a long time, and if students uh, have been with me on different places, I have a no-prank policy, okay? You know, if you've been a teenager, you've been on that side of it. There's a no-prank policy. Why? Because what starts with a loosened salt shaker ends up with an animal in a cabin, right? Because it ends up one-upping each other because justice will never be solved. Justice will never be felt, in our personal relationships. And and so we say, you know, I'll do this and then I'll retaliate and then I'm good. That's just not the way it works, is it? So no prank policy. But God designed justice to be defined and carried out through his appointed authorities. God is a just God, he is one of justice. It's who he is, it's in his nature. And so to say, well, do we just forget about justice? Absolutely not, it's who he is. But with sin, provisions are needed. With sin from Genesis 3, provisions were needed that we aren't going to get the justice here on earth that that uh, that we may desire. It's also a reason the eye for an eye, it also puts a limit to it. So you don't start with a salt shaker being loosened and end up with a raving animal inside of a cabin, but you actually have limits to how far you can go, and an unbiased judge has the opportunity to do this. We have an Eighth Amendment to walk that out. And so God's provision for justice here on earth is by His hand or His agents. And personal relationships, they weren't created to solve their own justice. And that's why God says that um, He is the one that's going to take care of justice. We take God's place when we're enacting justice and vengeance. Romans 12, 19, says, Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. He is the one. And so, what do we do? The court does their job, an eye for an eye, and so we are in a position to trust our governing authorities. We're able to leave room for the wrath of God and not the wrath of Jared to take place. We're entrusting ourselves to the Lord. And if we can get our heads wrapped around, aren't trusting ourselves to the Lord, believing that he's a just God, then the next words that Jesus is gonna say aren't gonna sound quite as crazy. Because he's gonna say, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But as Jesus has been doing, he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. This is the light in the dark world. We do not resist the one who is evil. And so are we really called to a place of non-resistance? That's what it says here. The Greek word resistance, antistemi, it's to defend oneself. It's this idea of physically, aggressively defending oneself. And so he's calling us to a place of non-resistance. In other words, we don't retaliate. Now the evil here, just to make sure, is not an abstract sense of evil. When he says resist the evil one, He's not talking about Satan or the devil or evil forces, this abstract thought of, like, evil out there. It's a a personal, it's a different word that's used. It's, It's in the masculine form. So it's saying, do not resist the one who does evil, the one who wrongs you is another translation. Do not take revenge or retaliate on the one who wrongs you. This especially spoke clear to those in ancient Near East cultures and those in honor societies. Because because it was an honor. I mean, it was part of maintaining your family honor is, is to retaliate against the one. And it didn't just stop at a personal relationship but could go on for generations. And so Jesus was speaking to a culture that was wrestling through this. Remember, we're not too far from this as well. And so Jesus is dealing with our private and personal matters of retaliation, as he has been talking about, the ones in our hearts. We're not to retaliate. Now, not retaliating, he's not saying be pacifist in this, because we're called to still confront evil. We're told to confront and stand up to evil, but we're not to retaliate. So what Jesus is saying is that we don't retaliate against the one who is evil in our personal relationships, Jesus is definitely not against punishing evil. He makes that clear in Romans 13 that the government's place is to punish the evildoer. An unbiased judge is in the place to determine this. And so picture this. My child is out on the playground and there's a fight that breaks out and he gets hit there is certain things, or they are in a place where they've been attacked on social media, whether it's in a group text or Instagram or some kind of social media, and then what do they do? As a parent, I am called to protect my child, to stand up and make sure that I am confronting what is needed there. I I, I should be, in, whether I'm the authority as appointed by the Lord or other authorities that may be in place there, to be able to Make sure that my child is under the authority and being taken care of by the authorities that may be involved in that situation. But I can tell them not to retaliate, at least within their hearts, to not take on the physical aggression, to not get to a place of wanting to retaliate and hatred towards that person that has done that. As we've heard, and sometimes it's hard to understand, but it takes more strength to not retaliate. If you've been in that position, you know... Sometimes the teeth marks in your tongue when you have to bite your tongue on things. You know, God will ultimately bring justice. Every bad thing will be dealt with, either in hell or on the cross. Everything will be paid for. And Jesus calls us to non-retaliation and to trust that he will take care of Jesus, that he will take care of this. And, And for me, I have a whole lot of questions when I hear that. And that sort of sets the premise with it. And Jesus probably was thinking the same thing. He's looking out in the audience because they have some more questions. And so he actually provides us with four mind-boggling examples of what love is. And so he can break this down further uh, for us and what it actually looks like to walk this out. So you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But what I say to you is do not resist the evil one. His first example is here, how to love an offender. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. I sometimes wish I didn't see the words if anyone, right, there's no exceptions to this. If anyone does this to you, if it slaps you on the cheek, right, this idea—it's not the physical pain that bothers somebody. It's a, it's a it's the right cheek, right. Most people are right-handed. I'm one of the blessed left-handed people in this world. But it's a right-handed slap to the right-handed cheek. It's a backhand. It's not a physical pain. It's an insulting thing. My dignity has been attacked. That's what he's talking about here. And so when we're insulted. He's saying, are you willing to turn him the other also to endure further? We endure insults because that's a different kind of love. Now, I'll say this, but I want to make sure that I pause so that I can be very clear about this, that this doesn't apply to someone that's in a situation of abuse or asking to be a punching bag by any means. Like that's, He's talking about the retaliation within our hearts. And when we're talking about a physical, not to just say receiving more when it's not supposed to be. Our church doesn't stand for that. Believers should not be standing for that. We know that there's authorities that should be contacted in that situation. And so what Jesus is talking about here specifically is talking about enduring the insults of an offender. And so how do you do with being insulted. Uh, My instinct is not one of love when I feel disrespected. Something wells up in me. Not my spouse, but of course, a spouse could do this to one. A family member makes a cutting remark towards you. I know I've done that to many. Being made fun of in school or belittled at work for something, laughed at for something, what do we do? What happens in our hearts? But this is what makes a follower of Christ different. To love the offender. He, he provides another example. I'm sure that he was thinking of many people within the audience that this would connect with. And he gives a second example, example to love the taker. And he says in verse 40, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If sued for your tunic that was a provision that was allowed. He says, give your cloak too. Now that was a big deal. That may not like strike with you. You're like, all right, so the, give him the cloak. But what he's saying here is the cloak was a big deal. The cloak was something uh, that was used more than just an overcoat. Of course, it's a desert culture, so it's going to keep warmth. But it was also used as a pillow or a blanket, something that was needed when out in these environments. And so what's What's the big deal about that? Well, you didn't take somebody's cloak. What do you mean? Well, Exodus twenty-two twenty-six 26, it says, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, okay, there's a provision for it, you shall return it to them before the sun goes down. So even if you were having their possession and they've taken something from you, you if you had their cloak, you gotta give it back anyway. And so Jesus is saying, if anyone would sue you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You can imagine what the audience was looking like saying, like, did you not read what it said there? Jesus asked us to go further. He asked us to go further than and giving something that we even feel like we're entitled to. Notice I said feel like we're entitled to. Giving the shirt off your back would be a good translation, but it goes even further. Giving them extra clothes, a bed, and your pillow too. I know, some of you are really protective of your pillow. And Jesus sets a different standard for love. Loving those who take from you and willing to go further than what you're entitled to. That's what makes it look like a different kind of love. If that one didn't hurt, he says not only do we love the ones that are insulting us and taking from us but he also says that we're to love our oppressor. In verse 41 he says if anyone forces you to go a mile go with him 2 miles. Again, if anyone forces you, they the audience knew exactly when he said if anyone tells you to, forces you to go a mile. This was in the Roman law. The Romans, by law, could make a Jewish person, could make any of their people that were under their uh, authority, walk a mile with their baggage. And so they all understood when he says, if anyone forces, yeah, yeah, the Romans, right? If anyone, when they forced us, I remember the time they walked me to, they forced me to walk a mile, or in that case, it was a thousand steps. What does he say? He's like, just don't feel, fulfill the legal obligation. He tells him. Don't just, if they force you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Why why would Jesus say that? It's a love that goes beyond the obligation. The Romans were the enemies. And Jesus was saying, don't just do what they ask you to do, but go even further to the enemies. You know how many zealots were in the crowd that probably were like, I'm out. I can't take this guy anymore. And Jesus is calling us to even love the ones that are oppressing us. To go further without complaint, Jesus will ask us. He gives a fourth example where he says we're to love the beggar. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Someone begging is in need, he says you, you give it to them. He even says it further. He says, if someone wants to borrow something from you, the, in, the intention here is that someone's going to borrow something from you and you're probably not going to get it back. You don't give with the intention to get it back because we give without expectation of it being paid back. That's a, that's a different love. Love is seen here as a generous and willing spirit. We don't ask, do they deserve it? Will they pay me back? That's the questions that rise up in me, and that's the Pharisee in me that rises up to say, don't we need some sub-rules that kind of come under what Jesus is saying, what has been communicated to us? Like, I, wa- I want to justify this in saying, like, what well, would be irresponsible of me to give something away that maybe I need later on? And what you'll see here is Jesus is talking exactly to the audience like me who says, are you trying to justify what I'm asking you so that you can, what you think is give more clarity instead of having your heart change to be in a place of willing generosity. I think of our food pantry. As people come through there, there's no asking of, do you really need this? Can we see your income? Is there proof of anything? Lord blessed us with food, and there are people up there that love the Lord and just want to give it away without questions asked. They don't expect anything in return. I love seeing that walked out even with those faithful people up there that have donated to it, that have come, and the love of Jesus is being walked out there. And so Jesus told us not to retaliate against an evil person, and he lived this out. This is the same Jesus that was wounded and insulted by the Romans and the Jews at the crucifixion. He turned the other cheek when the insults came to him. He gave of his clothes he was forced to carry his cross. Jesus gave everything he had for people who didn't even understand what he was giving them. Jesus confronted the relig- religious leaders. And Jesus did all this knowing that he wouldn't see earthly justice. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24 says, "For this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you Leaving you an example, and what an example he left, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, when he was forced uh, to do things, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin on the and his body on the tree, and that he that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And so Jesus suffered to leave us an example. His heart was for love for you and me and even those who reviled him. This is the level of how far love can go. A paraphrase of a quote from Thomas Brooks says, To return evil for good, that's just satanic. But to return good for good That's just human. But to return good for evil, well, that's divine. That is divine. That is the love that Jesus has shown us. Love, like Jesus describes and shows, that is the most powerful force. Martin Luther King said, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend, for it has creative and redemptive power. And so when Jesus talks about being salt and light, loving without retaliation is a very bright light. But Jesus not only raised the standard of loving without retaliation, we're also going to see here in the second point that we're to love beyond expectation. Jesus raised our standard to love beyond what the expectations are. Jesus continued to emphasize the same principle, and he's going to go even further. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 43, he says, You have heard it said, we know those words, you know, a but is coming at some point. You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. is perfect. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Well, of course they've heard, you've heard it said, love your neighbors, right? Like that comes from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If I got any elementary teachers in here, or those of you that remember that in elementary school, I remember a poster was like the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. It's probably back when that was a little more allowed in public school. The problem is they also, he said, you have heard it said, hate your enemies. If I were to point you to hate your enemies, you would know I was wrong because that is not going to show up in the Bible. Nowhere is it written in the Old Testament to hate your enemies. So you can see, they have heard it said this. This is what people have been taught. This is the tradition. This was added to the Pharisees. How did they even get to this conclusion? Because they knew you were supposed to love your neighbors. That means that you defined your neighbors and so you could love them. Outside of that, they were looked at as, and their neighbors were those who loved God and wanted to keep God's name pure and holy. Outside of that were considered enemies. And so what do you do with your enemies? You don't love them. You hate them, is what the Pharisees would say. They helped people. they were trying to help people make a clearer definition, but what it did was it moved it away from the intent of what Scripture had. Love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? This question was asked in Luke 10. A lawyer asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? When Jesus says, Go and love your neighbor. And Jesus tells a parable of the, great, of the Good Samaritan. A very offensive one to, to the audience who he was speaking to in many ways, especially to the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes at this time. Because he concluded that everybody is your neighbor, even those who don't have the same religion and race and worldview as you. And so he says, our neighbors are the humans created by God. Our neighbor includes our enemies. And so he says, love your neighbor. And even though it's hard to love our enemies, Jesus tells us we are to love our enemies. In fact, he says here in verse forty-four that, but I say to you, right? That that change that he says there. But I say to you, let me give you the light of what it is: love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not my natural response. But this is exactly what Christ did. You can picture him on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved his enemies. He loved us when we were his enemies. At one point, every one of us in this room was his enemies. I sometimes forget that. If I came to Christ when I was six, I didn't always view as I was in a place of being an enemy of Christ, but I was headed towards the same fate as anyone still who has not bent their knee to Christ. Romans 8 starting in Romans 5, starting in verse 8 through 10, he says, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God loved us when we were sinners and he reconciled to us. And, and when he says here, That we're to to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love here is a present imperative. It's happening now and it's a command. It's a continuous calling that we are to love our enemies constantly and consistently. And that we're to pray for them. Also a present imperative. To do this now. Now. And it's a command to do this, a continuous calling, that we pray for our enemies, and when we do this, we put them before the throne of God. We put our hearts in a proper state towards them. Look, God already loves them, and he's just helping us love them, because I don't have the willpower to do that, I don't, and none of us do. C.S. Lewis says that prayer doesn't change God, it changes us, and reminds us that we were once enemies, and Jesus brought us to the Father, and so praying for your enemies. Who's your enemy? Who's the one giving you difficulty? Who's the one that sits in your heart that is thinking about loving beyond the expectation to want to apply retaliation to? He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God shows love to everyone, whether they accept it or not. He, He says there that... That when we're sons of the Father who's in heaven, it says that what, his, what do we do? God does this for us. That He does this for all mankind. He says he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the, in, and the unjust. He says we show it to all. And so my response is not to love with, ex, I love with expectations. And I expect it sometimes to be reciprocated. You know, 1 John four nineteen. why do we love? Because we love because he first loved us. And we can fully love when we remembered we were fully loved first. If you're thinking, I just can't, you're right, you can't. But then we picture what Christ did for us. He reminds his audience not just to stop at loving those who love you. He said there's no reward in that. Verse 46 and 47, he says, so if you love those who love you, what reward is that? There's... That's not difficult. There's no sacrifice in that. He says, don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? He says, even the Gentiles do the same. Love is sacrificial. Love is selfless. It's not necessarily convenient. John 3.16, we sang it today. Eric read it today. God loved the world that he gave his only son 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So it is not a sacrifice to love those who love you. E- even, even non-believers, even non-followers of Christ can experience at least a taste of love. They can get a sense of familial love. They can get a sense of a romantic love or even a parental love. God allows them to draw them in to know what love is. Of course, tainted with sin, but can experience it. He says, even the tax collectors, Gentiles, the outcasts, have love for at least their kind. And so he says there's no reward in that. And so we need to remember that we shouldn't just resemble the best non-believers in our love, but exceed it. Jesus calls us to go further. Further than just loving our comfort zone and someone safe. Further than just loving someone with our same beliefs and worldview. Further than just loving someone who doesn't offend us. And further than just loving someone who can reciprocate our love. We can truly love the enemies around us through Jesus because God saved us while we were his enemies. And yet we recognize that God loved us when we were his enemies. And out of a grateful heart, we should desire to apply this love. Where does this lead to? He says in verse 48, he says, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He summarizes this this whole section whether it's our commitment or whether it's our love, he says we need to be perfect. We, I can't be perfect, you can't be perfect, but Christ in me is perfect. That it's a perfect standard that we're moving towards and we're striving after. Just like when if I said, you know, hey, I've, Jen, I've loved you as much as I can. I think I've kind of maxed out the love. He says, there's always more. And so we're moving towards that. And praise God, I hope there's a whole lot more because I love what I see now. I can't imagine years and years after this. And so he says, we strive towards that. Perfect love takes an utter dependence on Christ. And so I've clearly had to wrestle with this in my own life, as all of us have, because we get plenty of opportunities to practice this whether it's in our household, whether it's in the work world, whether it's in our neighborhood, whether you're driving home and somebody cuts you off in traffic, get plenty of opportunities to practice this. What does it mean to love? And um, I so appreciate and so love God's word says there, and I love the testimony of others as well. When they are able to share how God's love transformed them and they're able to forgive. If you're from, from Lancaster County, from Lebanon County, you know, you hear about these testimony of the Amish. And I'm not all sure about the theology of the Amish, but it's amazing the stories of forgiveness that take place. And I think about when Christ's love transforms a heart, how love can change a person. And I'm inspired by those who have shared this and communicated this. One of my heroes of history is a guy named Louis Zamperini. If you've seen the movie Unbroken, you didn't get the full story. You gotta read the book. I know everybody says that, but I definitely mean that. Louis Zamperini's story found in Unbroken, the subtitle, World War II Story of Survival, Resilience, and Redemption. Louis Zamperini was a guy who was far from the Lord when he went to World War II. He was shot down. Sorry if you haven't read this, but I'm going to give away a whole bunch of it. He was shot down, and he was floating in the Pacific Ocean, a couple other guys with him, and he made a promise to the Lord that if you get me out of this, I will serve you with my heart. He is rescued, but not in the way that he wanted to be rescued. He was rescued by the Japanese and sent to a prisoner of war camp, and horrific stories um, were, were shared there. Horrific stories of him being beaten daily, of of him being humiliated, stripped of all dignity. Him and the other prisoners of war, uh, by the Japanese, and each day the hatred grew for this. Revenge was wanting uh, to be had. Stories of multiple times a day and the starvation that he was uh, facing. And one man in particular. Musarito Wantanabe. Wantanabe had targeted him as the one that he just wanted to break. And um, that promise that Louis made that if you save me, God, I'll serve you, was far from his mind. He didn't feel like he was saved at this point. That's not what he had in mind. Eventually the war came to an end and he was freed uh, from his camp, liberated. Comes home to California and life just got more complicated. Never didn't recover from that. He suffered from nightmares and anger, as you can imagine. He drank enough to at least push away the pain for that day, but each day he had to run through the same pattern over and over. He was married, and you can imagine the the relationship was not an easy one. His wife comes to know Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. And he, he's invited to a Billy Graham crusade, which of course he says, nah, I'm good. I, it's me and my alcohol, I'm good. That's what's gonna help me get through this life. Eventually after the, shall we say, nagging of his wife, he shows up, but he says, I'm not leaving the back row. I'll go to the back row and that's it. And he sits there as Billy Graham does what Billy Graham does and preaches the gospel clearly. He's agitated, he's irritated, he's angry hearing it. He even hears a story of John 8, the woman caught in adultery, and he starts to see himself in that and is on the edge of his seat saying, wait a second, Jesus is going to forgive a guy or a woman, a person who was clearly living in sin. He recognized his sin in that moment, gave his life to Jesus, ends up leaving the back row, going forward and following Christ. Immediately, he's following Christ He changed his way. He went home that day, dumped out the alcohol. And he recognized that he had a whole lot of forgiveness to work through. The retaliation was still sitting in his heart. And he knew knew at that point that he wasn't going to get the justice that he wanted before he met Christ. But he knew he needed to do something with it. And so in 1952, he went back to Japan. At that point, the Americans, the Japanese, were in better uh, terms in terms of relationship. They sort of pushed away some of the animosity that had been uh, with them in the war. And he goes back to Japan in 1952, and he wants to talk to the prison guards and let them know that he has forgiven them. He particularly wants to talk to his main assailant in Watanabe, He goes back, and he asks for Watanabe along with the other guys, hey, where is that guy? And they said, sorry to tell you, we think he committed suicide. I mean, a lot of these guys fled and hasn't been seen. And So he realized then he wasn't going to get the closure that he thought that he needed. And so he faced each of the other captors and said, I want you to know that I forgive you. I'm sure some of them were broken at that point. Some, many were confused I'm with that. And um, and so he goes back and lives decade after decade until a story came out a few decades later through some news reports and eventually word gets back to Louis that Watanabe, the guy who was presumed to be dead, is alive. He had fled and went into hiding. And years later, uh, essentially there was pardons that went on between the Americans towards the Japanese. And so he waited a few more years and eventually surfaced out kind of like in a hidden place and Louis like, still have an opportunity for forgiveness. And so he wanted to go meet his captor. And word got back that, to Wantanabe that, hey, this guy Louis, and he knew exactly who he was, wanted to meet you. And he was sort of back and forth. I don't know. You know, hey, you know, I was kind of brainwashed at the time. I don't know if I even want to talk about this. And um, eventually he says, I'm not sure if I want to meet him or not. And so Louis says, I'm going to start heading over there. But since his, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to, I'm going to write a letter to him. And at least give this to him, at least my thoughts, so if I never get to meet him. And here's what the letter said. To Mutsuhiro Watanabe, as a result of my prisoner war experience, under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not due so much to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. And thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you because Christ said, Forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I asked about you, and it was told that you had probably committed suicide, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like others, I also forgave you and now hope that you would also become a Christian. Without Jesus, Louis wouldn't have been able to write that letter. Well, the way the... uh, the end of that story is: Wantanabe refused to meet with Louis. He never met him. We don't know if he ever read the letter. We know the letter was given to him. And um, we know that Wantanabe lived for years after that as well. Louis seemed like he had every right to continue his hatred and harbor that hatred and on one level, but he never, because he never had a chance to address his captor. And, but Louis didn't take justice into his own hands. Louis lived into his 90s, just died actually a couple years ago and uh, made a difference in this world and for God's kingdom. He was able to understand his former position as an enemy of God and then be able to walk out that promise, God, I will serve you. He remembers how he used to ignore God's love and now embrace it. He understood that he needed to be poor in spirit and be broken over his sinful ways he knew that he needed to mourn his own sins and the sins of others. He knew he re- needed to remain meek and humble under God's sovereign plan. He continued to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to stay in a place of forgiveness. He, needed to receive, he did receive God's mercy, and then he was able to apply that to others. He remained pure in heart. He was able to seek reconciliation with his enemy. He pursued peace, even if it wasn't achieved on this side of heaven. And he was willing to withstand the persecution, even to be ignored. What do you need to do with your enemy to walk out even the Beatitudes? Do you need to pick up the phone? Do you need to have a conversation? Maybe the conversation needs to start right here with the Lord. If you say, Lord, I don't think I can, he says, that's exactly where I want you to be. I don't don't think you can. I know you can't forgive. But understand that through my power, you can forgive. You can love your enemies. And you can pray for those who persecute you. And this is the gospel. A love that turns enemies into friends. If you've experienced it, then you can apply it. If you've never experienced it, Just know that that is the same love that's offered to you, that he can turn an enemy of his into a child of his. And so Jesus makes it clear that we can love and we don't need to retaliate to find our justice and that we can go beyond the expectations of love only through his power. And so, Father, as we come to you today, oh, so thankful for your love. God, my finite brain can't always get wrapped around what that love was done for my heart, for my life. God, and you just continue to give me glimpses of it so I can keep going deeper in my love for you. God, I pray that we can apply that, that the Holy Spirit's able to take Jesus' words and apply that to our hearts so that we can walk out, God, not just for our own sake, to get better sleep at night or to not feel anxious when we walk outside in public, but God, so that we can be a light in a dark world. This is what you are calling us to. You are willing to use us. And so God, I just pray today that as we wrestle with that, Lord, that you will be very real, that we won't run past a moment to be able to come to you, God, and ask for your help and depend on you. And Lord, I just pray for those of us that have been our knee to you, that we can engage the power of the Holy Spirit in us And Lord, those that have not bent their knee to you yet, God, I pray that you are very real, that your love is very real today, that they can bend their knee to you, Lord, that you can save them from the sins and turn an enemy into a child of God. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.